Good. I'd like to say a few things about our practice tonight, trying to give some context and um, maybe help uh, a process I find is of uh, foremost importance when we meditate, uh, that process I would call orientation. Uh, there is no proper Pali word for that, so uh, forgive me if I cannot claim canonical evidence for this. But practical experience tells me we, we need to orient. When we sit down uh, on our cushions, when we turn our attention inward, then we need some orientation. Unfortunately, the meditation instructions are somewhat strange. Yeah, there's no, no doubt that um, early Buddhist teachings think tremendous uh, amount of, uh, give a tremendous amount of weight on meditation practice. But if you actually look how much is said about what to do in meditation, uh, it is quite disappointing to find that uh, the standard account for how to meditate, it occurs over two dozen times in descriptions, sounds something like um, young person finds face and uh, leaves home, takes to homelessness, um, becomes a monk or a nun, and then um, takes up alms mendicancy uh, while still uh, having a shock of black hair. Yeah, So they're young when they do that. And then they go on alms round. Uh, uh, they uh, return with their meal. They take the meal. And then after they have... Uh, taken their meal, washed their arms bowl, washed their hands, they seek a place of physical solitude under a tree, uh, at the foot of a root, um, in a cave, in a forest, in a thicket, uh, sometimes in the open, on a bundle of straw. And there they cross their legs, they erect their bodies upright, they establish mindfulness in front of them, and proceed to subdue the hindrances. Very nice analogy, tells us how the hindrances fall uh, away. And then they enter the jhanas. <laughs> Again, very nice analogies, uh, how the jhanas arise one after the other. And then shortly thereafter, they emerge with profound insights and have basically realized what they have left home for. Yeah. Now, I've done this for a number of years, and I've done it myself, and I've been with plenty of others, and generally, people are quite willing. They uh, may not become monks and nuns, but they're quite willing to give up things, go on retreat, they cross their legs after having eaten, they put their bodies upright, they uh, establish attention and mindfulness, and... Don't abandon the hindrances. Don't experience the jhanas. Don't get enlightened. You know, they do that for days on end, days on end. Still, still no jhanas. Still no enlightenment. So I am inclined to believe that we don't have the full picture. Now you may think that people in the time of the Buddha were a lot more gifted. You know, that they were just so kind of you know wonderful social backgrounds, healthy extended families. No fragmentation, you know, still intact family relationships, no internet, no, no ego shooters, you know, no public transport, nothing of that nature. This is true, 
you know, extended families were a lot more popular than they are now. Um, this, were, this is a pre-industrial society. Uh, village culture was probably the most dominant feature of social life. Um, internet addiction was probably not really a very rampant uh, issue in those days. Um, public transport was not particularly gruesome. Uh, and yet I'm still I'm, I'm having great doubt that these were ideal people. I'm great, I have great doubt that these people were really so much more gifted than in fact we are. Um, you know, there's two there's big collections of Buddhist teachings. One of these collections is the Sutta Pitaka, which is full of the discourses of the Buddha, situational accounts of whom he met, with whom he spoke, what he taught. Generally, very specifically, to particular people, on a particular place, upon a particular question. Some of these people were his monks and nuns, some of them were his supporters, some of them were other religious people, practitioners, some of them children, some of them women, some of them rich, some of them poor, educated, uneducated, the whole gamut of society turns up and discusses with him. But there's other collections of texts. Another collection of texts is kind of a lot less famous and a lot less known. It's the collection of monastic discipline. Now you would think this is boring stuff, this is just for monks and nuns. And there is indeed a substantial part in there which uh, is material around the monastic rules of monks and nuns. But in between these rules, and the rules make up the smallest part of, those collect- of this collection, in between those uh, rules and the explanation around the rules, you have lots of teaching. You know? And you have some historical accounts and some accounts of how these men and women lived in the time of the Buddha. Fascinating, little-known stuff, which is highly insightful about communal living, about uh, the challenges of people in those days. And one of the things that emerges is these are very, very normal people. People that need need rules how to eat properly. Table manners. Any, Any culture that needs... 26 rules how to eat decently with your alms bowl. Probably, there is probably a reason for this. Yeah? You can imagine if, if the Buddha feels it is necessary to teach his monks to not make big spoonfuls so that things don't hang to the left and to the right of your spoon down. Yeah? And that you look in your own alms bowl, not into the alms bowl of your neighbor. Yeah? <laughs> things like that. These rules, they're probably there for a reason. There's a couple of other rules. You find just about every human depravity in these, uh, in these rules. Generally, these rules come about because somebody misbehaved. And although the rule wasn't written, there was a general shared understanding by the people who supported monks and nuns that monks and nuns were not to behave that way. So because they have offended against that unwritten codex, uh, they went about to complain to the Buddha. The Buddha then cited the offending monastic, and usually gave him an upbraiding and uh, after questioning him or her, and at the end of it stipulated that this type of behavior uh, be no longer uh, done. And at the end of this is a rule. Usually the rule was amended a couple of times, exceptions were pronounced, and so forth. 
And from all this body of texts and teaching, it is obvious that these people who, in one collection, namely the one of the discourses, seem to get enlightened so quickly, just listening once to the Buddha, all things are impermanent, yeah, and then, tak boom, they kind of free and understood the transiency of human existence deeply right into the marrow of their bone and realized urgency in their hearts and finally uh, dedicated themselves to practice and had a breakthrough. These very same people in the other collection of books need a lot of talking to so that they give up their toy windmills and they don't play with things and they don't hoard cloth and things like that. So if I look at the whole of it, I have an impression that these people were not much more enlightened than we are. That although extended families may have been more uh, widespread than they are now, uh, I don't have the impression that these people were morally more gifted or had more uh, higher perfections that would make it easy for them to get more quickly awakened than we are. So, to cut a long story short, I believe that we, are, we need to carefully patch together some of the things the texts don't tell us about meditation. Yeah? Because if you cross your legs and you sit upright, most people don't just abandon the five hindrances and drop into the five jhanas. Four jhanas, arupa jhanas, five jhanas, according to the Abhidhamma. Yeah? Most people don't do that. There are rare exceptions, who, people who, know, who do that have had beautiful examples. Several times, generally elderly Asian ladies who have reared dozens of kids and grandchildren, and then finally, when everything is done, they go to the monastery, and uh, some of them have profound samadhi experiences. After a lifelong uh, practice of service, and letting go, selfless dedication... <laughs> like you find in mothers and grandmothers, then suddenly they have the fruit manifesting in their meditation practice. But that's the exception, even in uh, lovely old grandmothers. Um, Most of us need to practice and to find that when we cross our legs and sit upright here, our minds continue to do things that uh, are not necessarily very awakened. They keep talking to us, they keep producing impulses that seem ill-matched to our situation. Yeah? We long to come here. We dream of retreats. We project onto retreat centers and monasteries and uh, stays in Asia that this will bring our spiritual practice the necessary boost we long for. And then we go to these places only to find that our minds want to go back. Our minds don't want to be here. Our minds are restless and kind of look into the endlessness of yet another merciless long afternoon. The only event at the end of it is maybe, you know, a ball of soup or a cup of hot chocolate or something like that. So we're contradictory beings. And if we um, want to deepen an, uh, an understanding of our mind, we need a lot of qualities. We need patience. We need orientation, we need courage, we need just guts, yeah, just guts and stamina, sort of grit to stay through things that are not easy, or, we, or the tolerance to do things we don't quite understand why. Yeah. So some things we understand immediately, and yet 
If you sit down, you will notice there are things happening, you just you don't know why they happen. Some things you understand have an easily understandable causal connection. Other things don't. Weird things. <coughs> Strange memories. Silly songs in your head. Compulsions. You know, collecting all the bass players of the bands you were fond of 20, 30, 40 years ago. You know? And you're making compulsive little lists of bass players of bands who, whose members have probably all died. Or... So the mind is a strange and contradictory animal. And one of the things that helps us to deal with this is orientation. So, The Buddha gives us a very simple form of orientation. He says, if you sit down, um, there are many things going on in your experience and at any one time. And it helps to just sort. You know. One way of sorting impulses or thoughts is just, is this useful, is this not useful? Is this wholesome, is this not wholesome? That's one simple way of making two heaps. Speaks of that in the Arya Paryasana Sutta, in the middle-length sayings. Another way of orienting what's going on, I'd like to spend a moment on tonight, is what is called the Satipatthanas, or the four Satipatthanas. The four establishings, or the four establishments of mindfulness. And these four have a very, very old tradition. We have many texts about them, many scattered teachings. Uh, in Pali we have suttas on that topic, uh, Three suttas, to be precise. Uh, slightly different, all three, but um, uh, and, uh, similar enough to be recognizable. And then we have many, many other teachings. We have a whole collection of uh, suttas on the teaching of Satipatthana in the, in the group discourses or uh, in the collected sayings, as they are called now in the latest translation. Over a hundred little snippets Beautiful little examples, in many ways more comprehensive than the two famous Satipatthana suttas. And then we have scattered other teachings, a little bit in the Abhidhamma, a little bit in the other collections. So obviously this is something that has been very important. The Buddha started to talk about Satipatthana right after his awakening. The teachings tell us that uh, Immediately after his awakening, he started to uh, ponder the Satipatthanas as a teaching device. And he speaks of the Satipatthanas on his last trip through Vesali uh, when he goes towards Kusinara, where he'll finally die. Yeah. He speaks about three or four times in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, he speaks about these four establishments of mindfulness. And then at one very crucial point, he says, uh, you should make um, you should make yourself a refuge. You should be your own lamp. And how can you be your own island? How can you be your own lamp? How can you be your own refuge? You know, I teach you those four satipatthanas. It is with the practice of cultivating four establishments of mindfulness that one becomes one's own refuge. So in many ways, these Satipatthanas, they're uh, pretty important. If you look at the lists, and early Buddhism is full of lists, full of charts, then the Satipatthanas are pretty high up.
It's no secret that sati itself, the quality of mindfulness that gives satipatthana their name, is also highly appreciated. It's it's one of the indriyas, it's one of the limbs of the Eightfold Path. It is um, highly appreciated in in many, many, many contexts. It's at the core of inside practice. It's at the core of samatha practice. It is at the heart of developing the Brahma Viharas, the four immeasurable states of the heart. So there is no doubt that sati itself is important. So what are these satipatthanas? Think of these satipatthanas as four big areas in which we can establish mindfulness, but also four areas of our experience. The first area, called kaya, is anything to do with body. It's the somatic aspect of our immediate experience. We would call this sensation, tactile quality, anything to do with our outer senses, so what we hear, see, taste, touch. Um, Kaya is um, most profoundly um, connected with the six six particular practices. The first one I've spoken of is, is posture, just how the body is always in a posture. And if you put your attention to that posture, then you will anchor your attention in the present. That's very useful. Many of us can be quite heedless. Yeah? Cephalopodes, little brains, dragging, dragging a body behind. If you ever notice people with a slight slant moving, you know, their heads ahead, heads full of ideas and plans, and then the body is a sort of corporeal appendage which gets dragged along a head which kind of leans into life. Yeah? Usually banging a few doors, stumbling, tripping, bashing into things, making a more greater mess than, uh, we, uh, than would be necessary. Yeah? If you don't recognize yourself in this, then you're to be congratulated. Almost all of us, when being preoccupied with something, seem to... Um, go into that mode. You know? We become brain beings. We become obsessed or preoccupied or with an idea, with a notion in our head, with an impulse, we need to do this. And then we retrieve our attention from other parts of our life and we kind of go into our head. You know? In English you say, you've got a bee under your bonnet, isn't it? That's, I think, a very nice image for that. With a bee in your bonnet, you don't tend to think of your feet very much. Yeah? It's the bee that buzzes around between your ears and then you try to actualize that in some way. So it's easy to lose the body in favor of something that goes on in our head. This is a very well-documented phenomenon. You know, this, the, the naughty professor, uh, the scatty thinker, uh, the foggy-headed intellectual. Uh, there are plenty of cliches around this. But in truth, it's all of us. You don't need to be a great intellectual to be in your head for a moment and lose everything else, lose an actual awareness of what your body is doing. 
Happens to the best of us. Whoever wanted to walk up a you know, a flight of stairs. Most of us don't want to do that. Most of us want to be either down or up, but we don't want to be somewhere in between. So one of the things we do when we're in our head, we don't want to be in between states. We never want to be in the place we just be. We never want to be in the elevator, in this flight of stairs, in between doors. We're always somewhere else. Neurologists tell us that this is the default mode of the brain. It seems to be important, we are told, for our planning function, because coming from coming in a state of that default mode, we are uh, operating um, with our capacity to think of things that are not present, that are not right now here. And that, in some way, seems to create the ground upon which future activity, future uh, volitional functions are uh, actualized. It seems to me that we're doing a lot of this. Even if you think that this is not what you want to do, uh, still there's a profound habituation that we spend much time planning, conceiving, uh, calculating, anticipating, apprehending, uh, And that all goes in some way at the expense of being completely conscious of what's happening right now, right here. The Buddhist texts call this um, burning by night and smoking by day. So you, you think up things by night. You're burning by night when you should rest and sleep. And during the day you fume yeah, and smoke. So burning by night and smoking by day is, an, is a, a very, uh, I think, telling little analogy that the Buddhist texts use for people who are preoccupied with thinking out things which they later on could then put into action. So Kaya Nupasana, the first segment of Satipatthana practice, encourages us to stay present in the posture of the body. The second segment of that is mindfulness of breathing, anapanasati, which we shall do a lot of. The third section is sampajanya, which means clear comprehension of the body in movement when we're not in a formal practice, when we're not in sitting or standing or walking or lying down mode, but when we're in between, when we bend and stretch when we go to the loo, when we do things that don't seem to be in any way connected with meditation. Yeah? Staying embodied while doing this is a particular exercise which has, uh, is greatly popular in Buddhist cultures and has been emphasized by Buddhist teachings all along. The fourth of the body practices is an element practice. It's called learning to think of yourself and learning to reflect on your own experience in terms of elements. So we'll do some of this later in the week. It is a, a particular type of understanding one's own process in elemental qualities rather than in terms of me and mine. The fifth and the sixth of these body practices are a lot less popular. Yeah. The fifth is about contemplating the organs of one's own body and acknowledging that this body is put together with different organs and tissues, 
different substances that make up its functioning uh, uh, unity. This is a practice that is analytical, and it is about, uh, first of all, it's about visualizing, and then it is particularly cherished for its sobering effect. So, we visualize our organs. We visualize the composite nature of this body, that it is made up of different organs, different tissues, different fluids. It's a not very popular type of exercise because it goes slightly counter the notion of, you know, nice Buddhism and Buddhism as wellness and lifestyle. It's... um, not very easy to sell that one as a Buddhist teacher. That this is people should contemplate their kidneys and their uh, synovial fluids and their uh, intestinal contents. Then that the nature of the composite uh, form of our bodies. Um, this is a powerful psychological exercise that is threatening our um, self construct. It threatens our notion of solidity and intactness. It doesn't really fit very well into a group retreat because it needs a kind of... um, It needs a proximity to support that we cannot offer in a a situation like this where there is uh, one teacher and 40 people. And yet it is a powerful exercise. Monks and nuns and serious practitioners of all Buddhist traditions have done that throughout the centuries. You find documentations of that in the Tibetan tradition, you find of it in the Chinese tradition, you find of it in all the early Buddhist traditions. The sixth one is even less popular. The sixth one of the Kaya and Upasana practices are the charnel ground contemplations. It's You contemplate the dissolution of a body right from the moment when it is dead, via the time when it is festering in various stages of decomposition, up to the moment where it is completely dissolved and bleached bones. This is a contemplation that has come from um, the time when Buddhist monks, nuns, would often be in open charnel grounds, the places where human bodies were burnt and where such bodies were visible, so a most stark uh, reminder of the mortality, because such a reminder of our own mortality tends to sharpen our sense of priorities. Again, this is not a very popular practice. Somehow, you know, you don't see that advertised on the Gaia House website, um, you know, as the sort of the mainstay of the practices going on at Gaia House. Um, you may get a whiff of it, you know, there's a little graveyard, a sweet little graveyard out here. You may have noticed the nuns who have lived in this place. This is a monastery. You're sitting in the church of the monastery or in the chapel of the monastery. Uh, the old, if you uh, have recalled, there's a little steeple behind you and slightly above. If you watch out of the window of your bedroom, you may recognize it. And the sisters who were buried are still out there in the in the yard. And the Buddhists have promised to keep the the graveyard of the Christian sisters. So so there is a little bit of that. Yeah? We all know that. Other traditions than Buddhist traditions have made uh, contemplations of death and mortality and have felt it necessary um, to evoke the 
the all too easily forgotten presence of death in, in our midst with forceful images. When I came back after many years of Thailand, going to <clears throat> Swiss Valley, which is famous for being Catholic, and going to one of the chapels, I've seen all kinds of uh, you know, bones and uh, little symbols or little um, puppet limbs and little, little legs and heads. And uh, uh, There is a brand of Catholicism in some corners of Switzerland which uh, was um, very strangely, felt strangely Asian. It felt like a, like a charnel ground contemplation. You know? And it was slightly weird to meet that when I came back and visited my parents as a Buddhist monk to suddenly find myself in an apparently familiar place which was doing in an apparently exotic type of practice. So I looked at my, my own uh, uh, religion of upbringing with completely new eyes. Traditions of all um, religious persuasion have understood that human beings tend to forget that they die. And because we don't remember that we die, we believe we have eternal time. And because we believe we have eternally time, we don't put the things at the top of our lists that are really the most important. So one way of recalling what is important is recalling that we don't have time forever, that we die. That sixth practice, the dissolution of a body, uh, drives home very, very powerfully that we are transitory as to things we experience in our senses. Of these practices, we will, we will do three in this course. We'll probably do an exercise on Dhatu Vavatana, on the element. element. Uh, but on the whole, we will do practices around breath, we will do practices around posture, and we'll do practices uh, around Sampajanya, around a clear comprehension of movement. Often, when we do that, they are not separated. Yeah. Some of these practices, we nominally separate them, but in fact, they lead one into the other. Our breathing practice and our body posture practice often lead one into the other. Our Sampajanya practice has something to do with, with our Qigong exercises and with the standing, and they're not cleanly separated one from the other. The next big area in which the Buddha encourages us to establish uh, mindfulness is the domain of, he calls Vedana. Now, that term has no proper translation into English. This is very strange. Although it is absolutely clear what the word means, it means the degree of pleasure and gratification you get out of an experience, or the degree of displeasure and um, unpleasantness or discomfort you get out of a an experience. Strictly speaking, if I wanted to be a, a little technical, then I would call this the hedonic tone. It's the connected with pleasure. Yeah. <coughs> Sometimes people translate that as feeling. Vedana is not a feeling. There are not many Vedanas. There is stri strictly speaking, there are five Vedanas, and for the body, there are only three. It's either pleasant or it's unpleasant or it's neutral. If the mind is concerned, it uh, has a shade that is uh, somanasa, that means it is 
happy or serene or domanasa that means it's despondent or sad or gloomy. So there are basically not many tones of these Vedana. There are differing intensities of Vedana, but the tone, it's generally either the pleasant ones that get us or the unpleasant ones that get us. The neutral ones take already quite some meditative skill to even detect, because usually we even miss the subtly pleasant one and the subtly unpleasant ones. Why is this important? It is important because we are wildly interested in pleasant Vedana. Our whole system is geared towards maximizing the experience of gratification, pleasure and comfort and to minimize the amount of unpleasant, uninteresting, disagreeable experiences. Experiences, I mean, unpleasant thoughts or pleasant thoughts, unpleasant emotions or pleasant emotions, unpleasant bodily experiences or uh, pleasant bodily experiences, unpleasant sights, sounds, tastes, touch, qualities, or pleasant ones. So, every event in our experience has a hedonic tone. So, every thought in your mind has a slight echo of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality. Every body sensation has an echo of more or less discernible agreeability or disagreeability. So, there's nothing we experience that isn't that doesn't have an echo in the realm of Vedana. Vedana rules. Vedana is that which makes us act in many, many, many cases. If you do not understand why you do something, find out what gives you Vedana in there. Find out what protects you, what Vedana it protects you of, and you will find out about your motives. If you do something you don't understand, generally, there is something you avoid or there is something you seek as gratification in there. Yeah. It's very easy to discern when you know it. If you don't know it, um, you may simply do things without acknowledging that you seek pleasure. I'm not speaking from a moral point of view. This is not about morals. This is just how the human mind works. It seeks comfort, it seeks Agreeability, it seeks stimulation. What stimulation for you is agreeable and for your neighbor may be already disagreeable, we're quite different in that. That hinges on our conditioning, it hinges on our uh, availability, but that we all seek pleasure and comfort and agreeable experiences. We do not, we're not very different from each other in this one. So much of your attention is geared towards seeking things that are pleasant. And if we understand how we seek that, if we understand when something pleasant occurs, then we'll also understand more why our attention goes there. If we understand when unpleasant things arise and how they arise, then we'll understand why our attention does not go there. So if we want to find out where our attention goes, why it is so difficult to be mindful of something uh, as um, harmless as the breath, then it helps us a lot to find out about what particular Vedana we strategically avoid, 
what particular Vedana we strategically seek. Yeah? So the economy of our attention is mostly explained by our, uh, the Vedonic tone we seek in things. That's why Vedana and the study of Vedana is very important. We will do some more of this in the coming days. The next big area in which we are encouraged to establish mindfulness is the area of mind states. It's emotion, it's the climate of our inner life, it's the state of our heart. That is a broad area. In that area, much of Buddhist practice happens. All purification happens there. Everything to do with uh, samadhi happens there. This area can be concentrated or distracted. It can be peaceful or restless. It can be uh, cantankerous or docile. It can be awake or it can be sleepy. The citta, as is the term, the citta in the human experience is a broad, broad range. It's where we usually go to when we are asked, how are you feeling? That's where we go to and find out how we're feeling. Yeah? It's a continuum. It's an inner habitat, if you want to say. Yeah? Uh, it's our, the experience of our psychological world. If we speak about this in today's language, then generally we... Uh, speak in psychological terms of this area. People a hundred years ago were not speaking in psychological terms. They only just started speaking in psychological terms a hundred years ago. So if you read old literature, and you've got some fabulous writers in English, uh, and people who have understood an awful lot about inner processes, it's fascinating to see how Writers of the 19th century, for example, write about inner processes. The Russians are particularly great in this, not just the English, but the English have uh, fabulous writings on this. The inner landscape is written and described in very powerful ways, even before psychological language came about. Today, when we speak about the realm of Chitanupasana, then generally we, we, we use psychological terms for this. So this realm is very important. It is full of mood, it is full of affect, it is full of volition. Yeah? So everything to do with intentional qualities. Let me name you a few. Longing, desire, aversion, aspiration, greed, uh, pushing things away. All these would be qualities, would be expressions of intentional qualities. Yeah, Something that wants something, something that doesn't want something. All these would be volitional qualities. Impulses in our heart. Things that say, oh, I wish that. Oh, I want this. Oh, I wish this would stop. When does this end finally? Yeah, Every such thought is basically the, the label underneath an impulse. So all these impulses are forming part of that third big area of practice of mindfulness. The last area of mindfulness, in many ways, is, to, is, a slightly, is in a slightly different category. 
Uh, the name for it is uh, confusingly Dhamma, uh, with, an, with a long A at the end, meaning phenomena. Uh, the plural of that word refers to many things. It refers to uh, states, for example, not as emotional states, but mental states, thoughts, images, concepts, uh, anything we can think of. And the, uh, that's the raw material. The actual practice the Buddha suggests is to look at particular connections of such qualities, qualities which are particularly detrimental to awakening and qualities which are particularly beneficial for awakening. So, in many ways, you could say these four areas, they cover the realm of body, somatic experience, somatic aspect of our experience. They cover the realm of pleasure and pain, so hedonic aspect of experience. They cover the realm of the heart, affective realm of experience, and they, um, in a specific way, cover the realm of the mind, mind content, so the cognitive aspect of our experience. So if you want a very simplistic version of these four satipatthanas or the raw material of these four satipatthanas. The exercises are something uh, slightly different, which we will need more time for this and practical uh, exercise. The raw material in these, are- in these four areas are somatic, bodily, hedonic, about pleasure and pain, uh, affective, about mood and state and impulse, um, and cognitive, about content of mind, image, concept, discursive activity, thought, um, construct. Now, this may sound all quite neat, isn't it, in some way? we got a nice sort of fourfold structure of human experience. But in fact, this hangs all together. You know, you can deck that out as I have just done and as we find it in the Buddhist teaching. But in fact, these things always are connected. You never get a clean thought without any echo in your body, without any echo in your pleasure domain, without any uh, echo in your mood. If you look very closely, then every thought, you know, thin as it may be, and uh, light as it may be, has a little sort of thread. And at the end of the thread is a little uh, something more thick, you know, and at the end of the th- something more thick is something even more thick, yeah? So a tiny little thought, if you pull long enough, may drag a big fat emotion, yeah? So these things are connected. And when we sit here and experience our inner world, then generally we experience some form of tangle. If we pull long enough on one thing, our whole inner life comes, yeah? Little thought may drag along a big, big emotion. A couple of flimsy thoughts settling in, creating a climate, gradually establishing a mood, mood settling into a major depression, and uh, that goes into the body, you know, metabolic rate of our liver goes down, uh, posture 
goes flabby. Uh, you know, our eyes get slightly tearful. Yeah, there are connections there. And obviously, we want to cultivate connections <clears throat> that are helping us to understand things more deeply, helping us to be happy and peaceful, helping us to um, widen the heart. So many of these um, exercises we're going to do in the coming days are to help us orient. Now I tell you this tonight because it's necessary to even theoretically be able to orient, to be able to say, what I'm experiencing right now, is this a mood, or is this a body sensation, or is this a thought, or is this just pleasure or displeasure? Yeah? To be able to make this fourfold distinction is important. I wasn't taught this in school. My background and my upbringing did not give much e emphasis on such distinctions. I have found this to be highly useful to be able to make a, such a distinction in my life now. If I am aware of what's going on inside here, can I distinguish, is this a feeling in the body? Is this a thought in my head? Is this a state of my heart? Is this just pleasure or displeasure? Just to know this is already helpful. Well, obviously these things are going to jump. You know, the thought in my head is going to give me a, feel, a, a feeling in the heart. The feeling in the heart is going to create the mood. The mood is going to influence my ways of thinking. My ways of thinking are going to do something with my posture. Uh, and all of this may be pleasant or unpleasant or a mix of it. But just to slow down the process and actually single out one of these things and say, oh, this is a thought. Look at that. This is a thought. It arises, it does its number, it ceases. Yeah? I don't own it. I don't control it. It's not mine. It doesn't say the truth. It's just a thought. Just to say that, and rather than believe that thought and follow that thought and be dragged around by that thought and go into a mood of despair and feeling gloomy and despondent, this is already freedom, isn't it? It's already a great freedom to be able to say, well, just because I think it, it's not necessarily true. And if I mindfully acknowledge this is arising, this is doing its number, and now it is ceasing, I have actually established a relationship not to the content of the thought, but I have established a relationship to the nature of the thought. Now, all of these thoughts... All of these thoughts have arisen. All of these thoughts are there for only a short time. And all of these thoughts have disappeared and vanished. I don't quite know where. I don't quite know where they come from. But I know no one, no single one of them will make me happy. No single one tells me the truth about my life. No single one is more than a construct of my understanding. And if I'm not completely free right now, then it will not be of a quality that I can truly trust. Yeah? If I understand that such a thought, when I just let it die and disappear, stops, when I don't believe it, when I don't try to finish it, have you ever tried to finish a thought? My thoughts sometimes come up with them and say, think me to the end, please. Yeah. I'll leave you in peace if you go with me for the rest 
and if if you finish me then you, you'll be peaceful then you will know then you will be content I've followed so many of them and no thought really takes one to the end of thought is it they all have many brothers and sisters they all have a kind of logic like rabbits and cabbages you know, they want to multiply and thought leads to more thought thought doesn't lead to the end of thought the promise of any one thought that it leads to the end of thought is a false promise it is never born true whenever I tried that so just to know the nature of thought and the content of thought are two different things the content of thought may be dramatic it may be threatening it may be enticing it may be challenging it may be murmuring it may be you know all kinds of things but every such thought with whatever colorful content every such thought has arisen on the basis of causes it exists for a short moment and it disappears without fail somewhere behind the stage yeah and to acknowledge this truth gives me another perspective on thought that i perceive to be a freedom it doesn't resolve thought altogether but only to know this is already a great liberation that i can relate rather than to what the thought tells me what it wants me to do what it wishes me to believe that i can relate to its nature namely that it is impermanent that it doesn't belong to me and it doesn't really make me happy already that instills a great degree of realism in my attitude towards channel 4 yeah think of these satipatthanas as of tv channels channel 1 this is body channel 2 this is pleasure channel 3 this is mood story emotion channel 4 sorry channel 4 this is the story this is the text line this is the commentary yeah usually if we don't train our minds we're spending much time in channel 4 because that's where things are happening that's where the plot line is that's where the nar- narrative goes so one of the things we're training in these days is shifting habitual emphasis from channel 4 thinking discursive activity to channel 1 body body processes breathing sensation posture This is a bit simplistic it doesn't quite do justice to the sophistication of Buddhist psychology but I think this is a very good model think like in TV all the channels are always broadcast but you can choose on to which one you hone in yeah you can choose which channel you're giving your focus it seems to be the default mode is channel 4 storyline thought thinking concept yeah and if we want to be more real and if we want to get in touch more closely with what's what's happening in our lives we need to be able to leave channel 4 we need to be able to leave the discursive corner of our life and actually get in touch with things underneath the label if you go shopping it's not enough to just get the wrapper yeah and the print of the wrapper you actually want the stuff in there isn't it you don't just read the label you want to get the product so if we want to get more close to the product we need to get underneath the label 
Obviously, this is not quite easy because there is a little bit of habit going on. We've been playing with labels for a long time. That's what our education system supports. That's where we get our grades for. That's how we project our egos into the world. That's what we need to con communicate, to make a stamp in the world, to find, to carve our niche. Generally, we do that somehow with the quality of mind that is capable of verbalizing, of stating things, of connecting ideas. So the encouragement Buddhist meditation gives you goes counter the habit. It goes counter our training in uh, many ways. Not completely, but the, sh the emphasis is on another place. So right now we're learning to shift that emphasis from attending to thinking, identifying with thinking, speaking with the thought, speaking with what uh, the thoughts tell us, we're trying to shift our attention to the slower processes of the body, attending to sensation, attending to posture, attending to texture, attending to um, how we relate to these bodies. Good. If you forget everything, don't forget, please, four channels, body, pleasure and pain, mind states and mind content. Channel 1, somatic experience. Channel 2, hedonic experience. Channel 3, affective experience. Channel 4, cognitive experience. All channels are always on broadcast, but we make the choice on which channel we happen to give our attention. Yeah? And taking back our freedom that we can actually choose. This is possible. If we don't choose, it'll be channel 4, mostly. And you'll feel betrayed. If we don't choose, we'll feel betrayed. We'll feel victims. We'll feel, basically, we didn't have a choice. So that's why we need to recapture our capacity to make a choice, where our attention goes, and to attend wisely in our particular channel. These channels need different kind of attention. More about this later. For tonight, let me end. Thank you for your attention and patience. I know you have a long, hard day um, behind you, and if you um, have the energy, continue practicing. I would like to take a few minutes to be in stillness with you and to suggest dedicating whatever good things have occurred in your life today or whatever merit arises from your efforts and your practice that you share that with the people who are important in your life, people who are close, people whom you need, people whom you're grateful towards.
Good. I'd like to finish with some more chanting and uh, pass on some sheets. There should be enough this time. We need more light. Is there a possibility to add the other couple of lights that are on the walls? Thank you. Great. So I was asked why we chant in Pali rather than in English. Uh, Pali being difficult and alien. Um, the translations are there. Uh, you can read the translation. Um, Maybe I'm slightly biased. I believe Pali sounds nicer than English, to be honest with you. It has more vowels. Um, since we're doing Buddhist meditation exercises, which go back to the Pali tradition, I think it is permissible that you also recite in the Pali language. And I personally have probably a sentimental relationship to that language because it is the language in which some of the earliest teachings of the Buddha are enshrined and. I tend to think that people reciting this uh, Pali texts have uh, basically gone for two and a half millennia, and I tend to think that these chantings are just continuing in this universe. Only the personnel changes over the centuries, but the chanting continues, and I find it rather inspiring to join in that big a temporal chorus in this. Um, you may think differently if you do so. I would nevertheless simply invite you to practice with this and to see whether you could put your mind to these strange sounds and uh, give your voice to it even and see whether uh, something happens. That would be my suggestion. The content of this chanting as you see, is again the Brahma-viharas, the four immeasurable qualities of the heart, love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And this time it's a meditation instruction, basically straight out of the suttas, um, as they occur in many, many passages in the uh, discourses of the Buddha. While this morning we were doing a reflection, also from the Pali Suttas, but uh, now we're simply uh, reciting what the Buddha actually encouraged his monks and nuns to do. Yeah? You've got enough light? Good. Meta sagate na jetasai kamdi sang barita vavi aratitata tutiang tata tatiang tata jatua tangiti ua tamadua tiriang sabadi sabatataya sabawantang lokang Meta sagate na jetasa vipule na maagate na apama ne na 
ವೀರೇನ ಪಾರಿತವಾಹರತಿ ಕರುಣ ಸಗತೇನ ಜೇತಸಿಸಾಂಗಿತವಾಹರತಿ ತತ್ತಿಯಂಗ ತತ್ತಿಯಂಗ ಚತ್ತೂತಿಯಂಗ್ಮೋಕಂಕರುಣಸೇನೇತಸ್ಪುಲೇನಮೇ ಪಾಜೇನ ಪಾರಿತವಾಹರತಿ ಮುದಿತ ಸಗತೇನ ಜೇತಸಾಂಗಿತವಾಹರದಿ ತುಂಗ ತತ್ತಿಯಂಗ ತತ್ತಿಯಂಗಿತಿಯಂಗಿತಿಯಂಗಿತಿಯಂಗಿತಿಯಂಗಿತಿಯಂಗಿತಿಯಂಗಿತಿಯಂಗಿತಿಯ